I invite you, if you brought a Bible or grab one of the blue Bibles in the back of the pews, if you have a Bible with you, turn to Hebrews chapter 11, where we will once again hear God's word to us from this wonderful letter to the Hebrews. There have been sections of this letter that we have gone through quickly, taking whole chapters in one sermon. But as we come to chapter 11, we are going to slow down and work for several weeks through this just beautiful, soul-encouraging chapter in God's Word. And so this morning, we are going to consider the first three verses of Hebrews chapter 11. But before we do, let us call upon our God once again and ask for his help as we hear his word. So please pray with me. Our gracious Heavenly Father, although it is the mouth of a man that will speak, I ask that it will be the word of God spoken, that you will guard my tongue from anything that is false, and that by your word and your spirit, you would lead us into nothing but truths. And as we grow in our understanding of your truth, would you sanctify us by it, conforming our minds, our affections, and our lives to Christ? And we ask all of this in his name. Amen. Hear now the word of the Lord to you this morning from Hebrews chapter 11, verses 1 through 3. We read, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, that is by faith, the people of old received their commendation. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. This is the holy, inerrant, authoritative, and sufficient word of God. And we give him thanks for not leaving us to ourselves and to our sin, but revealing himself and his ways to us by this word. If you have spent any time in Christian churches, then you are probably familiar with this language of living by faith or walking by faith. And you shouldn't be surprised that Christians speak this way because these are biblical phrases. Habakkuk chapter 2 verse 4, which says in part, the righteous shall live by his faith, was a foundational Old Testament passage for New Testament authors like Paul. And our author, the author of the letter to the Hebrews, has just referred to this verse at the end of chapter 10 in verse 38, where again he says, But my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. This 
word of exhortation, as the author calls his letter in chapter 13, is in many many ways a word of exhortation to live by faith, to keep living and walking by faith. But maybe, even though you are very familiar with this language, you're not quite sure what that means. Does it mean to live life with a blind kind of trust? Does it mean to live life turning off your brain and embracing ignorance and rejecting any kind of reason and critical thinking? Does it mean to live suppressing reality and exalting wishful thinking. After all, Paul says in 2 Corinthians, we walk by faith and not by sight. Does that mean we walk against knowing anything? Just faith, but we don't really know what we're following. Perhaps, therefore, you think walking by faith is like coming to a very busy street as a child with your father, and as your father commands you, as God commands us to live by faith, it means you close your eyes, you cross your fingers, and you just start walking across the street, hoping for the best and that you don't get run over. It's nice to say the righteous lives by his faith. It's better to know what that actually means and to do it confidently. And contrary to some of those misconceptions that are floating around, living by faith is not walking in blindness, ignorance, or wishful thinking. In fact, I'm going to try to convince you this morning that living by faith is actually the most reasonable, rational, securest way you can live. There is no wiser, more prudent, more intelligent, or more secure way than to live in this world than to live by faith in God. And so in an attempt to persuade you of this, I'm going to explain three propositions this morning. Number one, that living by faith is actually holding what you are hoping for and seeing what is not yet seen. Number two, that living by faith is what pleases God. And third, that living by faith is infallible. I hope that as you understand these three propositions, you will indeed see that living by faith is the most rational way to live. So the first proposition is that living by faith is holding the hoped for and seeing the unseen. The author in chapter 10 has just reminded the Hebrews of their own past endurance through a hard struggle with sufferings. And at the end of chapter 10, he then encourages them, we are not of those who shrink back. We are of those who have faith and preserve their souls. That's the category of Christian he wants them to be and believes they are. The category of Christian who has faith, does not shrink back, but preserves their souls. But the author knows that might sound vague, just as it might sound vague to some of you. What does it mean to have faith and preserve your soul? 
So like a, a good pastor, a good preacher, the author is now going to take time in chapter 11 to explain what he means briefly, and then spend a lot of time giving them examples, illustrations of what he means. So this morning, we're going to consider that brief explanation in verses 1 through 3, and then over the next several weeks, we will consider the various examples that he gives. The explanation begins in verse 1. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. To understand this, we have to answer two important questions. The first question is whether or not the author here is intending to give you an exhaustive doctrinal definition of what saving faith is by nature. What, what is it? What is the essence of saving faith? Is he trying to give you a doctrinal definition of saving faith? And I don't believe he actually is. But you'll notice here, there is no mention in verse 1 of God or, or of Jesus Christ. You can't define the doctrine of saving faith apart from Jesus Christ. So I don't think that's what he's trying to do here. You'll also notice that all of these examples in chapter 11, which begin with by faith, are all about faith in action, faith in practice, which leads you to understand when he says in chapter 10, verse 39, those who have faith, when he continues to say now faith, and as he moves on to keep repeating by faith, this is all just summarizing or, or shortening what he quoted from Habakkuk 2.4, which is living by faith. This is about living faith, faith in action, in practice. And furthermore, the Greek construction suggests he intends to give you something more than just a, a simple definition. What I believe he's explaining, therefore, is not so much the doctrine of saving faith, saying everything there is to say about faith's essence. He is explaining the practice of saving faith. What does this look like in action? Because he wants to encourage the Hebrews to live by faith. So they need to know what that means. So this is about what faith does. The second important question is whether or not the author is defining a subjective feeling about reality in verse 1, or if he is defining an objective reality. One way to, to translate and understand this verse is to view the author as describing an inner subjective feeling about reality. That's how the ESV understands and, and translates it. So you, you hear, faith is the assurance of things hoped for. It is the conviction of things not seen. It, it's pointing to my sense of assurance and conviction about what is real. Now that's not an entirely wrong definition. I, I just don't think that's the best translation we can have. The reason is because the word translated assurance 
more often than not, in fact, almost always refers to the substance of something, to its very reality, its essence, its nature, its being. So it's not so much about what I think or feel about reality, it's about what's objectively real. This same word appeared in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, describing Jesus when it says, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. That word nature is the same word you find here in chapter 11 as assurance. So that word usually refers to an objective, substantial reality. And the second key word in this verse, which is translated conviction, it's only used here in the New Testament, but it's used a lot of other places in extra biblical sources. And it always in those other sources refers to something other than a feeling or subjective intellectual certainty. When used in a context like this, it always refers to an objective proof or evidence of something. So in this case, I strongly prefer the translation of the King James Version, which reads, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Or of the Christian Standard Bible, which says, Now faith is the reality of what is hoped for, the proof of what is not seen. And that's why I say that living by faith is actually, in one sense, holding the reality of what you are hoping for. In one sense, it is actually seen. You have the proof, the evidence of what you don't yet see. So let's take those phrases one at a time. Faith is the substance, the reality of things hoped for. This means in one sense, you already have experienced possession of what you are hoping to one day possess. You have a taste of your future hope in the present. And for the Christian, that future hope, as we've been learning in Hebrews, is God's eternal salvation and rest. It is your heavenly home and inheritance. You are waiting for that, but our author says when you live by faith, you actually have it. You're holding it while you wait and hope for it. So think about when young man and, and woman get married and they are planning their wedding and their reception. I don't know how receptions got lumped in with, with weddings. I tried to convince Leandra, we don't need a reception. I, I was not persuasive, so we had one. But a lot of times, if you're going to a venue for a reception, what you do ahead of time is you, you get to taste the food that is going to be served. See, well, do you like the chicken? Do you like the fish? Is this what you want people to, to eat? We, we, again, didn't do that. We were paying for our own wedding as very poor college students. And so by God's grace, the church we were a part of, there were many godly and good cooking women in the church who made our reception feast for free. May the Lord continue to bless them abundantly for 
their good food and service. But in that taste testing, you, you haven't had that wedding reception feast yet, but you already know what it tastes like. You've apprehended the goodness of what you are going to eat. That's what our author is saying living by faith is like. You have already apprehended, tasted the goodness of those future promises that you're going to receive in full. So living by faith is not wondering, what's this going to be like? It's not hoping for something you know nothing about. You're hoping for something you've already tasted, that you're holding while you hope. He also says living by faith is, is seeing the unseen. It is the evidence, the proof of what is yet unseen. Now, these two statements are parallel. They're speaking to the same reality, just from a different perspective. So this time the author says, faith is the evidence, it is the proof of what is unseen. Now, what does that mean? How can faith be the evidence or proof of the eternal rest and heavenly inheritance that you can't see yet? Well, this is what I think the author is saying. You've most likely heard the phrase, seeing is believing, which means you need to see something with your own eyes to know that it exists. So I think about when I was, I don't remember how old, 10 or 11, and, and my parents, we went on like one vacation as a kid. We didn't like to travel. This wasn't because my parents were mean to us or anything. We just were a family who liked to be at home. So we planned a trip. Finally, one time we were going to go to SeaWorld in Ohio. Then we were going to go to uh, Niagara Falls. Then we were going to go to Toronto and come back home to Lansing. This was like a week-long trip that we ended up doing in less than two days because we just wanted to get home. So we just zipped through. But on the way, we stopped at Niagara Falls, and this was worth it. And I remember as a kid standing there looking on the falls for the first time. And as I was seeing them, none of you could have convinced me that Niagara Falls didn't exist. My sight of the falls was all the evidence proof I needed. To see it was to know that it was real. My sight was the proof. Well, this in one sense is how faith serves as proof or evidence of what we cannot see. Because faith is actually seeing the reality of the promises before they are seen. Now, you may say, I thought Paul contrasts faith with sight. He says, we walk by faith, not by sight. Well, Paul is contrasting faith with physical sight. Right, you're not seeing the reality of God's promises with your physical eyes. This is not observable to objective sense perception. But what faith is, is seen with a spiritual capacity. The author is saying faith is like spiritual eyes that God has given you to see a reality that he has not realized Yet, remember, God is outside of time and space. 
all of reality is always present before him, past, present, future. It's all there. It is all always perceived by God. Faith, therefore, is in an analogous and limited sense, like gaining access to God's perspective of reality. It's the spiritual perception of what God sees. So we're going to get to this more in the weeks ahead, but just look at verse 7 with the example of Noah. It says, by faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. In other words, Noah could not yet see any kind of physical flood with his eyes. But by faith, he knew it was coming. It was as if he could see it. God's warning helped him see this as unyet realized reality. So Noah is busy building this ark, not looking to some visible reality with his eyes, but looking to a, a reality seen only by his faith. Faith, therefore, is, again, in a limited sense, knowing what God knows, seeing what God sees in so much as God reveals it to your faith. You might say, then, that faith is not blindness. It's actually a greater kind of sight. Not physical sight, but spiritual sight. It's not looking at the world from your perspective. It's looking at it from God's perspective. Living by faith is seen through God's eyes. And so it is seen a reality that God sees, but you can't yet. Therefore, the sight of faith is the evidence. It is the proof of these unseen realities. Noah saw the flood by faith faith before he could see it with his eyes. And that's why he built the ark. The flood wasn't a hypothetical reality. It was just a not yet realized reality. But he knew it was coming. And you could not convince Noah it wasn't real as he looked by faith to God's word any more than you could have convinced me as I looked on Niagara Falls that the falls weren't really there. I was seeing it. Noah was seeing it by faith. It was the evidence. It was the proof. And the world should have received his faith witness testimony just as we receive eyewitness testimony. We be believe a lot of things we can't see with our own eyes based on eyewitness testimony. It's one of the strongest pieces of evidence you can have in our judicial system. And I think there's no greater evidence of what is coming than the faith witness testimony we're going to hear in Hebrews chapter 11 over the next several weeks. So Christian, you may live by faith in God's promises because you can actually see the reality of those promises by faith, even though you can't yet see them by physical sight. It's a different kind of evidence and proof, but it's evidence and proof. It is no less valid. So faith is holding what is hoped for. It is seeing what is unseen. Do you understand the encouragement that this was going to give the Hebrews? 
Remember, they're being told you've got to live by faith in a possession you don't yet possess. Remember, they had joyfully accepted the plundering of their property because they knew they had an abiding and better possession. Doesn't say they had wishful thinking that there was a better and abiding possession. Doesn't say they just blindly trusted that there was a better abiding possession. They knew they had it. How? By faith. They were experiencing the reality to some degree. They were seeing the reality of that better abiding possession by faith. So Christian, you can be assured and confident in your hope because you're actually holding it and seeing it. You can't hope for something you know nothing about. And God doesn't call you to. Christian hope is not blind. Christian hope sees through the eyes of faith. And therefore, living by faith is the most rational way to live because it's living according to God's reality and perspective, not yours, God's. And therefore, it's living according to the greatest wisdom, knowledge, and sight one could imagine. It's walking according to God's wisdom, knowledge, and sight. Not trusting in man's limited and fallible reason. It's trusting in God's infinite and infallible reason. But living by faith is also the most rational way to live because it is the way that pleases God. That's the second proposition. The author, quoting from Habakkuk 2, has observed that the righteous lives by his faith. He also says that God has no pleasure in the one who shrinks back, meaning God is not pleased with the one who stops living by faith. The reverse of that, then, is obviously God is pleased with the one who does live by faith. And this is explicitly confirmed in chapter 11, verse 2. For by it, by faith, the people of the, of the old received their commendation. In other words, God commended, he approved. He said, I'm pleased with these Old Testament saints who lived by faith. And he commended them by having their exploits of faith written down and recorded as his testimony of approval. So we know this is what pleased him. This is also an encouragement, therefore, because we know that the one who will receive this eternal rest and inheritance is only the one who actually pleases God. So don't you want to know how to please God and receive your inheritance? If you were the beneficiary of a, a will, but the inheritance came with certain stipulations, you would want to know what you need to do. Well, God tells us that the Christian needs to do nothing more than live by faith in God because that's what pleases him. And why does this please him? Because living by faith is accepting God's reality as real and accepting God's truth as true. It's therefore acknowledging that God is the authority of reality and truth. Faith is taking God at his word. It is acknowledging he determines reality. He determines truth. It's acknowledging he is the authoritative God. I am the obedient servant. That's how the universe works. 
sin reverses this order. Sin says, I determine my reality and I determine my truth. Sin says, I am the authoritative God, and if there is a God, he is my obedient servant. Sin does not do what God says. It tries to make God do what I say. Faith keeps the order in the right order. And I believe all of this is encouraging too, because it therefore gives you reasonable expectations for living by faith. For if Hebrews 11.1 1 is primarily speaking about an internal subjective feeling or confidence about what is true and real, then to live by faith, you must always be manufacturing a certain feeling and confidence in your thinking. And if you waver or diminish in that at all, well, you've stopped living by faith. Now, feelings and thoughts are important. If you've heard me preach, you know I really care about affections and I really care about assurance. But that's not what this verse is emphasizing. Faith is not trying to manufacture a particular feeling. What matters foremost is not Necessarily how you feel about what God says or your confidence in it at every waking moment. It's whether or not you're going to obey what God says. Again, we're not talking about the essence of faith here as much as the practice of faith. And faith in practice, faith in action, looks like obedience. Taking what God is revealing as true as what is really real, to quote one of my mentors even though it is currently unseen. So, for example, again, consider Noah. What if there were moments, as Noah is building this ark, that he didn't particularly like that God was sending a flood? Maybe he started to question at times, is that really what a good God would do? What if there were moments as he's hammering those nails into the wood where he's even wondering, is a flood coming? I mean, th this was not building an ark for a couple of days. I mean, he's doing this for years, a lot of years, and there's still no flood. Maybe there were moments where he's thinking, why am I building this boat again? Was living by faith dependent on every moment of how Noah felt or thought? Or was living by faith, he kept hammering the nails in the wood and building the ark because that's what God told him to do? I think Hebrews 11 tells us it was he, he kept building the ark. Your affections and your thoughts are important and God is sanctifying them. He is conforming how you feel and think to the way you ought to feel and think. But Hebrews 11 teaches you that God can still be pleased with you and you can still be living by faith even as those thoughts and feelings are wavering and being sanctified as you keep living and walking in the way that God has told you to live and walk. God is still pleased. You will still receive the inheritance. That to me sounds like the most rational way to live. 
So living by faith is holding the hoped for and is seeing the unseen. Living by faith is what pleases God. The third and final proposition, which likewise confirms that living by faith is the most rational, wise, securest way to live, is that living by faith is infallible. By that I mean living by faith will never fail you. There will never come a moment where you discover that this was all a waste of your time and that you will not receive what you are hoping for. Your faith in God will not, on the final day of Christ's return, be met with disappointment and thinking, it didn't happen as he said it was going to happen. You will not discover on that day that you were deceived. That is what I mean when I say it is infallible. It will never be met with disappointment, and you cannot be deceived. Look at verse 3. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. Now, in first reading, that verse seems a little bit random. Why does he talk about knowing by faith that the universe was created out of nothing by things that are un unseen? I, that was where I spent a lot of time this week. I, I didn't get it first. Why? Why is this where he goes after verse 2? Why doesn't he go directly to verse 4 and start giving this list of examples? What does this have to do with anything? It's, some think, well, this is actually where the list of examples begins. We, we weren't there to see the origins of the universe. The only way we can know how it was created is, is by faith. That's true. But I think verse 3 is doing more than just provide you the first of many examples of what faith looks like in action. I believe it's actually further establishing the surety and infallibility of faith. Because all the other examples that were given are of people living by faith, and they're not looking back at something, they're looking ahead at something that has not yet been realized. So imagine a, a possible contention as the author is describing living by faith in this way. You might say, okay, faith, sure, is a, a kind of spiritual sight, but isn't physical sight more reliable? Isn't that a better kind of proof and evidence, evidence? Because isn't what I can see and touch and, and feel, isn't that more real? In other words, you may acknowledge an invisible reality, but still give priority to the visible reality. Well, the author is challenging that understanding by reminding you that the invisible actually has priority to the visible. Because the physical universe did not come out of something that was visible or physical. It was made out of nothing by something invisible. Namely, the Word of God. The Word was not seen, yet it was God's Word that created all of the visible reality you can see. So, which is more real and reliable, if you can even speak that way? Shouldn't priority be given to the invisible Word above the visible world, since the visible world was made by the invisible word. 
Do you see his argument? You should have greater trust in the reality of the word you can't see than you do in the created reality you do see. Because there is no created reality apart from the invisible word. So the author is doing more to strengthen your faith because he's teaching you what the ground is upon which God commands you to walk by faith. And what you learn is that your faith is not looking to or walking upon anything in the created, ever-changing, temporary world. It is looking to and walking upon the uncreated, unchangeable, eternal Word of God. Neither, therefore, is faith looking to anything inside of yourself and depending on the solidness of your thoughts and feelings. The faith he's speaking about is an objective reality because it is grounded upon something outside of you, not inside of you, and this external thing is infallible. See, if your faith depended on anything in you, and if the reality you hoped for depended on anything in you, it would be like having to walk across a frozen lake where the ice is one millimeter thick. You cannot guarantee that that is going to stay in place. In fact, you can guarantee that's going to break. You're going to fall. That's not good. No, when God tells us to walk by faith, he is commanding us to walk by the infallibility of his word, which is like being commanded to walk across a frozen lake where the ice is a mile thick. Don't care how many times you jump on it, it's not going to break. You're not going to fall. And why is the word of God so sure and reliable? Why can you trust the reality that it speaks, but which you don't yet see? Because as the author tells us in verse 3, the word of God is so powerful that it creates the reality it speaks. To say it is for it to be. The word cannot fail to do what it promises because by the word of promise, it creates what it promises. The word of promise is the power by which the promise will come to be, which means all of the promises that you have heard in Hebrews, in God's written word, all the promises that depend upon Christ, who is God's eternal incarnate word, cannot possibly fail to be realized. Christian faith is grounded upon the infallible word of God, which means it's an infallible faith. And what is more rational than to walk according to an infallible reality? Living by faith, therefore, is not walking blindly. It's walking according to God's perfect sight, which he has revealed in his written word. Living by faith is not turning off your brain, embracing ignorance, and rejecting critical thinking. It's learning how to live and think according to God's perfect knowledge, wisdom, and reason, which is, you guessed it, revealed in his written word. 
For God has revealed himself and his ways for you in his word. And so you are simply to live acknowledging his truth and obeying his ways. That's what faith is in practice. So let me close again just with that image I introduced at the very beginning of the sermon. Imagine that, that you are a, a three-year-old child who has come to a wide, busy street with your dad. And to get home, you have to cross that street. But you're just a small little child, and there is a whole crowd of people who's crossing this street. You can't see over all of these people. You, you haven't seen your home. You, you can't see all of the oncoming traffic. All you can see from your little child perspective is the little bit of ground that is in front of you as you take one step at a time. And this is how you have to get home. Living by faith is not that father saying, close your eyes, cross your fingers, good luck. I hope I'll see you on the other side. When God commands you to live by faith, it is like that father saying to his little child, you take my hand and you follow me. Take my hand, you're going to hold my hand. You're going to feel the reality of what you're walking toward, and you just follow me. And then as you begin to walk, your dad starts describing to you the home that's the other side. He can see it. So he, he's describing it in such real vivid descriptions that it's as if you can see it now, but you can't see it yet. But his word is so real, it's just making it come alive in your own mind. And there are moments where your dad has to tell you what's a little bit ahead of of the road. He might say, there, there's a big pothole coming, so you can't see it yet, but it's coming, so you got to get ready. You're going to have to jump, okay? But I've still got your hand. I'm going to help you jump. Sometimes across the road, he tells you to stop. Maybe there's cars coming. You, you can't see, but he tells you to stop, so you stop. And then again, he tells you when to start walking, and you start walking. And you know you're going to make it to the other side because your dad is going to hold your hand the entire way. He's going to speak to you the entire way. That's what it means to live by faith. That's what you and I have to do every single day. We are holding what we hope for because God is not calling us to do this ourselves. He has given us his Holy Spirit, which is like grasping his hand. We are experiencing the God we are going to dwell with. And though we cannot yet see with our physical eyes, we are not walking blindly because he is telling us every step of the way what is coming and what we are supposed to do. That is what it means to live by faith. Christian, as God commands you to live by faith, he is gently telling you, take my hand and follow me. And so I ask you, will you take his hand and will you follow him? That is the most rational, intelligent, secure way to walk in this world, to your heavenly home and eternal rest, which is beyond real. Let us pray.
Heavenly Father, yet again, I am so thankful that as we call upon you in prayer, we get to call you Father. We are your child. We're, we're not just servants that you're just commanding. We are children that you are leading. And I pray that as we have to enter into a new day and a new week with things that we don't yet know what all is coming, as we get in our cars and we drive home, as we prepare for another work week, I pray that as we have heard your word, we will again just grip you tightly by faith and keep trusting what you have spoken to us. Help us by your grace to walk by faith and not by sight, knowing that walking by faith is a greater sight. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.